1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, February tenth, twenty twenty, and I'm the host of the show, Kara Santa Maria. And before we dive into the show, I want to thank those of you who have made Talk Nerdy possible this week the top patrons on patreon and remember you can always pledge your support by going to patreon.com slash talk nerdy um the top patrons this week include mary neva and her son um i think jim yeah um pasquale gelati sinai orika hagman dudas infinitas the zombie drummer phil t-bear brian holden Daniel Lang, and David J.E. Smith. Thank you all so, so much. It's because of you that this show keeps on going, especially on weeks where I don't sell any ads like this week. So we're just going to go straight on through with the episode. Okay, guys, this one's pretty funny. Fascinating. So I sat down with two individuals this week, Paul Kwiatkowski, who is the Wildlife Conservation and Sustainability Manager at Mount Auburn Cemetery, along with Dr. Maria Aliberti-Lubertazzi, Who is an adjunct faculty member at Rhode Island School of Design and also um, an environmental scientist specializing in wetland and urban ecology? She is actually collaborating with Mount Auburn Cemetery on biodiversity research and education. So, between Paul and Maria, we chat about the really cool urban ecology citizen science projects that are happening at a cemetery at Mount Auburn. So, yeah, guys, you're going to be so fascinated because I know I was. Without any further ado, here they are, Paul Kwiatkowski and Dr. Maria Aliberti-Lubertazzi. Well, Paul and Maria, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: It's good to be with you, Kara. Thank you.
1: All right. So I love it when I get to do um, an interview that's a three-person interview. It's not common, and that's mostly because of the constraints of my like my setup. My show has always been a one-on-one show, which means that I'd have two microphones and I only have, you know, the potential to record with one other person. But we've managed to hack it and make it work. So it's going to be really fun to get the insights from both as both of you as we chat today. All right. So let's talk urban ecology, wetland ecology, urban wildlife. Specifically, this, this was so exciting to me when I first heard that we would have the opportunity to chat, specifically in a cemetery. So Paul, you are the um, wildlife conservation and sustainability manager at Mount Auburn Cemetery. Is that a typical title? Do most cemeteries have a wildlife conservation and sustainability focus?
2: As far as I know, I may be the only wildlife conservation <laughs> and sustainability manager in the United States at a cemetery.
1: That's incredible. And so, okay, number one, how does one get that job? And number two, what is it about Mount Auburn that that this is a special project or special program that's happening at, at this specific cemetery? Uh,
2: well, when I came to Mount Auburn as an intern, uh, back in 1999, uh, I had been studying urban ecology in college and, um, I was, um, interning in the horticulture department here. Uh, but my true interest was in urban ecology. So I just over a period of years, uh, kind of developed and created my own niche, Mm -hmm. uh, Uh, You know, trying to uh, educate people about the importance of urban ecology and how, uh, you know, the cemetery is much more than just an active cemetery or an arboretum, but we're also uh, one of the largest uh, green spaces in this urban environment. So eventually... um, you know, there was enough interest in some of the programs and projects that I was initiating that the cemetery was gracious enough to create the position of wildlife conservation and sustainability manager.
1: And you guys are located kind of right in the middle of the city in in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right?
2: Uh, Well, we're actually on the Watertown-Cambridge line. The majority of the cemetery is in Watertown, uh, but both areas are really built-up urban areas. It's the
3: metropolitan Boston area, mm-hmm. um, but we're we're close to the Boston, so we're in the inner right um, part of that.
2: We're across the river, the Charles River, from Boston.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. So when I'm looking on like Google Maps right now at your location, it's obviously a, a large kind of green patch on the um, on the on the map, but it's surrounded by development. Yes. That's fascinating. Okay. So you have, um, kind of your own ecology that exists within, within that green space. And of course, Maria, to bring you in here, um, you are an environmental scientist and you're kind of collaborating with Mount Auburn, um, kind of working on this wetland ecology, urban ecology, um, project and also citizen science right
3: yes it's multifaceted (laughs) um uh yeah so uh this um this will be my fifth year um doing research here at mount auburn this whole this whole research and citizen scientist um thing has been developing evolving over the last would you say Uh, seven or eight years or less than that?
2: Um, Uh, Well, our citizen science program uh, began five years ago, uh, but before that, we had various uh, biodiversity researchers uh, that had implemented projects here at Mount Auburn, and we wanted to expand and build upon those efforts.
3: And so... Um, one thing that's uh, very important uh, to understand, very special about Mount auburn Cemetery is its history um and it's in addition to being this big you know green space, it also has um, many famous people buried here and um architectural and um, ar- arboricultural um, elements to it. so people of all from all different backgrounds and interests visit this cemetery. um but in addition to that, Paul. I wish I knew more about this, but there is a lot of data on birds at the cemetery for how a hundred years or something
2: yeah. more. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Mount Auburn uh, has been designated as one of the uh, import 79 important birding sites uh, by the mass Audubon society. And so every spring uh, we are, Swarmed by birders uh, to, that follow the spring migration, and uh, so uh, so that is you know one key component of what we're pursuing in our in our citizen science projects. Uh, we have a breeding bird survey, uh, which was implemented uh, last year, and uh, essentially. We, we have uh, an ecologist named, named Brooks Mathewson who leads a group of citizen scientists to 16 different points out on the cemetery grounds where uh, they, uh, they uh, s- stop at each point and uh, it, they essentially conduct a point count survey. So they will record any birds that they see or hear within a three minute period at each point. And the main thing they're looking for is to identify birds that, not only that they see and hear, but that are demonstrating breeding behavior, such as uh, collecting twigs to make nests, or uh, they may be bringing food back to young, or actually feeding young in the nest, uh, so uh, it's this is uh, kind of uh, built upon years upon years of the birders uh, recording their observations, not only here uh, on a birding board we have, but now as technology has advanced, they record their observations to eBird.
1: That's really cool. So, so I mean, I guess maybe, I don't know, taking a step back, some people who who are listening right now might be like, wait, what? You're doing like ecology and citizen science work at a cemetery? Like, what? how does this even happen? But of course, a cemetery is a large green space, right? Like this is right. an area that is often maintained and that is just naturally going to attract whatever the urban wildlife in this region might be. Is that is that correct? Is that a good way to look at this?
2: Absolutely, and it, it might be helpful if I gave you a little more background uh, before Maria really uh, steps deeper into uh, her area of expertise, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Okay, um, so Mount Auburn uh, was consecrated in 1831 and we are recognized as America's first garden cemetery. And our founders were well aware of the importance of uh, sustainability even back then. They, they tried to plan the cemetery in a fashion that uh, could sustain wildlife. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we're, we're still an active cemetery to this day, but we're also an arboretum. Oh, cool. Uh, and, and we um, we we've had, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've we've had biodiversity researchers conducting uh, various uh, research projects here over the years. But those were um, you know those were mostly related to our amphibian uh, residents here. And so some years ago, I thought that um, it was probably a good time to reach out to additional researchers so that we could expand on, uh, you know, learning about what was here uh, and also bring the community closer to nature. Uh, Because for many folks, our green space is where people go uh, to get outdoors. uh, Mm. Because they, many of them, you know, live in apartments or condos, or they live in houses with posted stamp yards, and they don't have (laughs) really the opportunity to spend a lot of time, uh, amongst, uh, you know, a a woodland setting or amongst, you know, water bodies, uh, you know, without, uh, being crowded out by many other visitors at that, at that same site. Uh, so we developed a citizen science program, uh, and we currently have, uh, eight, uh, studies that are incorporated in this this program. Uh, so we started with a phenology study in which uh, we have volunteers that go out and observe 10 species of deciduous trees and shrubs uh, around the grounds for a total of 64 specimens and they and in the spring they record things such as bud burst, uh, uh, leaves uh, unfolding, uh, flowers open. And the reason for this is we're trying to determine the life cycle, the timing of life cycle stages in relationship to weather and climate. Um, because we we need to know are, uh, as the birds are migrating north, are these uh, uh, specimens of trees and shrubs, are there leaves and, flowers open at the same time as the birds are arriving and as the insects are are emerging so that the birds have a food source? Mm. Or as the climate warms, is everything happening earlier and are the birds able to time their migration to arrive when the food sources are available? So that's a a very important long-term study and it was our initial effort uh, we've we have uh, 125 citizen scientists that have been trained uh, for this program, uh, so it's been a great success. Uh, wow. 2020 will be our fifth year of data collection, uh, and in the fall, um, the same citizen scientists uh, walk the same route on the grounds to observe uh, leaf color change, leaf drop and fruit and seed drop as well. Um, We also expanded our uh, amphibian monitoring, which began as monitoring our spotted salamander population here, into observing some of our other uh, amphibians and reptiles. And what we found was we really didn't have great diversity and amphibians and reptiles. And part of that may have been to habitat destruction because we are an active cemetery and we do still bury, bury people here, mm-hmm. but also years ago, um, some very dangerous chemicals were used in the horticulture field. Um, and so we could have lost populations to that. So we determined that um, it was appropriate to re- reintroduce native species that at one time most likely we're here. so we've reintroduced American toads, gray tree frogs and spring peepers and that was led by uh, a, a wetlands ecologist named Joe Martinez and now we current so we currently have three breeding populations of uh, of all of, of well we have breeding populations of all three of those species now So one of the dramatic changes is, that where the cemetery was quiet in the spring, now you can come in and you can hear, uh, you know, the American toads trilling and the spring peepers peeping, and it really adds that extra bonus and improves the experience of visiting Mount Auburn. Yeah. Uh, so that that's a win-win for us and for the public as well. Uh, yeah.
3: Okay. You know, say in addition, like just to point out that the spotted salamanders are um, a kind of a very specialized and um, somewhat rare species, hmm. um, and the fact that their population stayed here since 1831, um, it it maintain it's a species that. Um, so I don't know out out your way whether you hear about vernal pools. It's a type of
1: wetland. Okay
3: that fills in the spring with water and then dries out by the end of the summer. And one particular thing is that they're usually in in wooded areas and that they're usually, there's no fish, there cannot be fish living there. And so a whole suite of species, both vertebrate and and invertebrate specialize in being able to live and reproduce in those habitats. And the fact that those spotted salamanders are still here is pretty amazing. (laughs)
1: I love that. That's really cool. It's like something that probably, you know, folks who uh, who obviously wouldn't take the time or haven't had the opportunity to come visit or to read about these things may never know that there are these um like you said these kind of rarish creatures that not only live right next door but have been thriving next door for over 100 years. Maria, how did you get involved in working with the cemetery on these kind of urban ecology, these these wildlife projects? Because um, you're a collaborator there, correct?
3: Correct. Uh, yes. I. It was actually through Joe Martinez, who's at um, Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology, um, where I um, I've done research in urban ecology, and I also teach an urban ecology course. And I connected him when I heard about his work um, at Mount Auburn, um, both monitoring the spotted salamander population and also doing this reintroduction of these three, um, amphibian species. Mm -hmm. And, um, I had him come and speak to my class and, um, and, and, and talking with him more, I was like, wow, I'd love to, oh, there are ponds there. I study ponds. And so (laughs) it was through, um, Joe that I um, connected with Paul and, um, what, so what do I study? Um, specifically, I do a lot of different things, but my, um, my doctoral work, um, for my PhD was looking at dragonfly populations on an urban to rural gradient in Rhode Island.
1: Okay. So state. urban to rural gradient. So from more populated areas to less populated areas,
3: uh, um, More populated by humans and built up, yes. Yeah,
1: gotcha. Okay. And did you find that there are massive differences between those two areas? Okay. So
3: I have to explain something um, first is that dragonfly adults are beautiful, but that's not what I study. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I study the dragonfly's juvenile stage, which some people call larvae, but technically they're called nymphs. Okay. And they live in the water. They live in the water for one to three or four years, depending on the species, before the nymph climbs out of the water, its, it's exoskeleton cracks open, and the adult pulls itself out. Mm-hmm. And then if it's lucky and not eaten by a bird, it flies away. <laughs> um, so it leaves behind that exoskeleton and that's what I study. Is I collect exoskeletons of dragonfly nymphs, which are called exuviae. Um, and by collecting those, I can do a survey over the course of the whole season because certain things come out at different times along the seasonal um, um, along the seasonal path. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I collect those, and I then identify them in the lab. Um, so then what I have is a data set of which species of dragonfly successfully emerged from this body of water. So that's what I used for my doctoral work. And and I looked at, I studied the whole state of Rhode Island, but um, I really uh, had a lot of urban sites, including urban cemetery sites in, oh, in uh, Rhode cool. Island. <laughs> and so when I connected with Joe and then I was like, wow, I want to know more about this. I had never been even to Mount Auburn, and I live not far from here. Actually, um, embarrassingly, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's really interesting. You were basically, as part of your doctoral research, you did survey some sites where, um, like, cemetery sites. But my assumption is that those cemetery sites didn't have active, ongoing research projects like Mount Auburn does.
3: Absolutely not. Um, however, one of them currently does have a. I don't know if I. Um, he's not really a researcher, but he's a. Um, a Really um, bringing the cemetery. This is in Providence um, to light of in environmental circles, and mm-hmm. so he's just a great voice and with regard to that. Um, but no, that's correct. Um, I usually had to just ask permission, <laughs> um, and there was maybe one person that worked there. If that,
1: it, it, it's interesting because it it ostensibly like it makes perfect sense that a cemetery environment would especially one with an active arboretum like you know with so much um urban um uh, ecology would be a place to for environmental stewardship, a place for um, uh, wildlife management, and of course, a place where you could study some of these populations in great detail because it's, it's something of a controlled environment. Like it makes perfect sense to me, sitting here across the across the internet from you, but. I wonder if from just kind of like an emotional gut reaction perspective, the first reaction from a lot of people is like, ooh, a cemetery? Or like, ugh, science at a cemetery? I don't know.
2: Well, it's it's funny that you should say that because mm. we, we have this conversation quite often. Uh, and typically, the people's first response is, you do that there? I had no idea you could do that at a cemetery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, we, we've, uh, you know, we take very seriously uh, our role in the community as educators and uh, as being leaders for sustainability. So we have uh, gone to great lengths to try to preserve our woodland areas and protect our water bodies, but also to create more naturalized areas that at one time were much more ornamental. Just
1: So So like lawns and like maybe plants that didn't naturally grow there, but were just to look pretty for people.
2: Exactly. So but being in an active cemetery, there are expectations for what people think
1: the cemetery
2: should be. And so we we do work with lot owners and with the public to try to explain uh, the reasons behind. Uh, Some of the changes we're making and we and, you know, we we try to meet people at a certain point so that, um, you know, people's expectations are met while we still are protecting and expanding habitat for wildlife. Mm -hmm.
1: yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it, it does seem like a funny thing where pro- I, my assumption would be um, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not sure if you actually do this kind of interfacing, but I'm sure some people at the um, at the institution do. Uh, my assumption would be that even like the families who come to visit their loved ones or people who are laid to rest there, that if they're. Informed and educated about what the projects are, and if they really think about them, it's a win-win, right? It's about um, it's about providing and maintaining a really beautiful, really natural habitat that for organisms to thrive, and that's actually creates a more um, uplifting experience for everybody when they go to visit. But initially, I wonder if there's some pushback, or if there if you have to deal with any sort of like, wait, I don't want people to come visit a cemetery where my loved ones are laid to rest to see birds. Or like, I don't, I don't know if I feel comfortable with there being all this other science going on. It's really just should be here for my, you know, for grandma.
2: Well, I would say the more of the pushback we, we have is Mm -hmm. towards uh, expanding naturalized areas. Oh, uh, interesting. Ornamental because that's, that's more of, the expectation uh, uh, of visitors and lot owners of what a, ce- a traditional cemetery is mm-hmm. so people may may agree with what we're doing and say they they appreciate it but often they may say something like yeah i you know i i want there to be habitat here at the cemetery for wildlife but i don't want it by my lot But one of the the really interesting things we've found is as more people become aware of our efforts at Mm -hmm. environmental stewardship, um, they are are embracing it. In fact, uh, one of our salespeople told me last week that she was out looking at lot space with a family and they saw one of our uh, our, uh, signs uh, for our – breeding bird survey, which are very attractive numbered signs on stakes that we try to tuck into the, uh, you know, to the surrounding landscape so Mm -hmm. that they don't look out of place, but so that our citizen scientists know exactly where to go. And when they, when this family saw that sign, they were like, oh my gosh, I want to be buried near uh, this location where I know people will keep coming in to learn about birds and protect the Aww. environment. So, I, you know, I think people's perspectives, you know, are changing and a lot of people are thinking more long term uh, than ever before, especially in the face of uh, the warming climate.
1: Yeah, it seems like especially in the face of the warming climate and and this kind of change, and we'll dive into that, too, with respect to uh, some of your longitudinal citizen science projects. But also, I think in 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 the face of the fact that we do have an exploding population and, you know, if we want to be able to continue to bury people underground, we're going to have to think think about how we're utilizing cemetery space, you know, it's, it takes up a large percentage of the ground. And if, like you said, it's only utilized for ornamental and like really manicured um, locations, it's actually encroaching and has been historically for a very long time, encroaching on Uh, the habitat of wildlife, you know, in order to build a cemetery. And of course, Mount Auburn has been around for quite a while. But if you need to build a new cemetery, you're probably not going to tear down buildings that once existed. You're probably going to go into uh, a wild area, unfortunately, and level out the ground and plant some grass and then start putting in graves. And it does seem like there's a way to maintain a wild, um, or maybe I should say um, a managed wild population and like kind of have the best of both worlds and still have a place where, where loved ones can be buried and people can come to visit them. I'd actually rather visit, as you said, a plot that's surrounded by trees and birds and insects and the sounds of frogs and the sounds of wildlife than just like a grass field that goes on as far as the eye can see.
3: Yeah, no, I think, I think things are changing. I mean, obviously, this was a new, a novel thing that you were told about, Paul, but I think, um, yeah, I think people's perspectives are changing and, um, oh, as far as land use and decisions on that, mm-hmm. it's hard to, hard to know. Um, and then in different regions of the country and the world, it's going to be different on how people, how decisions are made about that too, I think. Yeah. Right? Um,
1: yeah, and obviously I know that that um, as environmental scientists and, and you know, um, organizers of these projects, your role is not a political one about how, how do we bury bodies in this country and, you know, what do we do? What are the death decisions that we can make that are more natural? But, you know, the fact is that is happening anyway. So how can we make the best of the fact that there are these um, massive cemeteries and maybe I mean, I hope that the projects that you guys are doing could be inspirational for other cemeteries to help um understand how they can contribute as well. I think about Los Angeles. I live here in in you know, very urban center, but an urban center where we're very proud of our our urban ecology and urban wildlife efforts. Um, you know, we have beautiful parks in the middle of of the city with where I think we're the only um we're the only city in the world other than Mumbai. So there are two cities in the world that have a big cat population in the urban centers um, because because we have, um, you know, pumas that live in the city um, and that are maintained within our our, our mountain areas. Um, and, and there are, like, even next to Griffith Park, there are these massive, massive cemeteries. And it's, you know, like, the animal populations that I see in some of these cemeteries are um, peacocks, You know, like, I don't think those were naturally living there. I think they put them in, um, or like doves or ducks in the pond, which is great, but it does feel very ornamental to me. And it would be cool to see a little bit of that kind of quote unquote rewilding of some of these spaces.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and to make the case, uh, you know, to, to continue to try to, uh, expand or improve on wildlife habitat while still maintaining the the general character of the cemetery. Mm-hmm. we uh, we decided to take a look at uh, you know wildlife and habitat uh, in the big picture. So we did uh, aquatic surveys of the, Uh, wildlife that we had in in our ponds and our vernal pool. We did terrestrial surveys, and that gave us some baseline data, which then in turn helped us to develop a citizen science naturalist program. Mm -hmm. And so within this program, uh, volunteers can learn about mammals and insects and amphibians and reptiles and birds, Uh, We also offer intro to plant identification and botany, as well as field notes and nature photography, and also uh, a training on the use of the iNaturalist app and uh, on becoming informal educators to the public. So it's a really well-rounded program, and Maria actually co-leads the insect training every year, which is, uh, uh, has been a great success. And um, the participants uh, in, the, in this program, though they will attend classroom trainings, uh, late winter, early spring, and then they can volunteer to become research assistants uh, throughout the summer and fall for projects such as Maria's work.
3: And so we have also, um since I've been researching here, we've also there's also been uh, as a woman studying um, ant populations here and cool. um, butterfly and moth populations, correct? Yes. Um, so currently, as far as the invertebrates go, that's
2: what. <laughs> right. Well, well, we uh, we have um, uh, a faculty member from Leslie University named Amy Myrtle who is. Uh, she is leading an arthropod study, which is um, essentially the caterpillars count program, which was developed out of the University of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, you know, essentially the, uh, the protocol for that is uh, the volunteers will look at the undersides of leaves uh, for arthropods uh, and also for for damage from those arthropods, and this it, this uh, effort is coincides with our phenology effort because of course many of these arthropods are consumed by the migratory birds as they're they're moving their way north. Uh, Amy also leads a pollinator study in which uh, uh, volunteers will photograph po- uh, pollinators visiting the perennial uh, gardens uh, on the grounds uh, and documenting through through photography what is visiting uh, each in- individual uh, plant so she can determine uh, you know what pollinators are are here and when are when they're arriving and from that we can you know then, really take a look at our plant collections to see if we're meeting the needs of pollinators by mm. having enough mm-hmm. uh, larval host plants, enough plants that could be food sources nectaring. or plants yeah, for, for nectaring. And also, uh, you know, in general, we want to look at our plant collections so that we know that, you know, we have enough breeding ground and cover for, for any of our wildlife species here.
1: That makes sense. Um, When you if you were to add up all of the different projects and programs that are going on from a scientific perspective, kind of underneath that umbrella, not just the citizen science programs, even though it does seem like that's a a large percentage of the work that you do. How many individual kind of research projects would you say that you have? uh,
0: Advancements in the medical field are giving nurses faster, more effective results than ever before. They should expect the same from their education, too. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format allows you to set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move faster through your program. So the faster you move, the more money you save. When you're ready, we'll be here. Visit capella.edu for a trial course at no cost to you. Capella University, don't just learn, learn smarter.
1: I'm happening at any
2: given time. Uh, Well, we, we had nine different projects in 2019.
1: Wow. Okay. And and were they all citizen science projects or uh, j- just
2: some of them? Eight of the nine had eight of the nine had a component. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the biodiversity researchers uh, that I've um, you know tried to uh, you know recruit or have reached out to me to see if they could pursue uh, you know their interests here. Um, you know these these efforts were all. Um, They were all led by individual researchers. And because I was developing a citizen science program, I reached out to each each researcher to see if we could accommodate their research by uh, having research assistants uh, in the form of citizen scientists kind of just jump in and assist with their work and also learn about their work and gain you know the experience of being closer to nature
1: sure and I, I guess that that leads me to um to some a need for a little bit of clarification about how the citizen scientists in each of these different programs and i'm assuming there's some variability what is their commitment like do you have people who sign up and who are really in it and who are working like most days of the week or do you sometimes have people who are coming to the cemetery just to walk the grounds who read about oh while i'm here today i could just count some things yeah i'd love to do that as part of my daily you know stroll
2: well well we um we uh promote we well first we create the curriculum Mm -hmm. and then we uh promote it to the public Uh, via our website uh, and other social media platforms, and then through just posters at, like, local libraries or making uh, local teachers aware of what, uh, you know, what some of the uh, opportunities here at Mount Auburn are. Um, And the way it generally works, because our citizen scientists are all volunteers, uh, we, we kind of we have different expectations for each biodiversity research project. So for mm-hmm. instance, for the phenology study, we ask that people visit the cemetery w- once a week and we, br- we broke down our phenology trail into three sections so that each section could be done in about 45 minutes. Cool. That, way, that way, if people are, are on their lunch break, they might just walk one section. yeah. Or if they have more time, they could do two sections or the entire trail. Uh, Some people come more than once a week and some people can't quite make it every week. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that is the ideal for us is that we have consistent data collection uh, with this effort. Um, And some of the other projects, uh, folks... Again, we, you know, we try to have them come on a regular basis, but each project's a little different and sometimes things are coordinated um, on the availability of the of the biodiversity researcher themselves. Mm-hmm. For instance, we have uh, a faculty member from Leslie uh, University and all, he also is a um, Works for Boston University. His name is Chris Richardson, and he is uh, he's undertaken an urban bat study at Mount Auburn. So he uh, will have volunteers join him here quite late at night, which is a much different experience <laughs> than the citizen scientists who are here, you know, visiting in the mornings for the phenology or the arthropod studies uh um, yeah. so, so it it gives those volunteers a really unique experience at Mount Auburn
1: coming back to to the work that you're doing maria um you know when you're in specifically with your collaboration at Mount Auburn we talked a little bit about how you first um how you first got involved but now that you are involved in an ongoing capacity are you working on a specific project? Are you working with Paul on kind of doing some of the more like I don't know what you would call it, architecture of some of the ongoing projects? Like, how has your role um, evolved?
3: Okay, uh, so I've been working here now for four years. Okay, um, and what I'm doing, like the overall the overall thing that I'm doing is I want to um, I'm studying the dragonfly, the emerging dragonfly community at the four wetlands um, on the property. Okay. Um, I started um, four years ago, uh, just doing a, I'm just going to go see every couple weeks kind of thing. So a, a small little, just to take a look. And then, um, so that was the first year. And then the, the, the following three years, um, I've been sampling every week during a th- the whole field season. So ideally late May through uh, late September. And this last year, um, so I started out sampling two of the ponds on the property. Mm-hmm. Um, and this last year, so my fourth year, um, it was my fourth year sampling those two ponds, but then I added the other two ponds. to lo- And so I'm looking at at the dragonfly community that is completing its life cycle and emerging from the ponds. I might also look at the adults flying around too. But um, so um, I'm also starting two years ago, we did a little pilot project with the citizen science um, program to see, could we do this? Could this work? Um, and, and, and so then the following year, which was uh, last field season, I had two volunteers who stuck with it through the whole coming weekly, um, doing wow. a similar survey to what I do, but on a different, in a different place. Mm-hmm. And I'll explain the, the, one of the factors is that, so the demographics of the volunteers um, change and vary, like, just like what Paul was saying, people who want to come at certain times of the day or are available at certain times of the day. But like for, for, Surveying for collecting dragonfly exuviae, you need a degree of, um, physical, um, mobility to access getting into the water gotcha, usually yeah. <laughs> yeah. and, um, navigating through the water and, uh, the plants in the water and that sort of thing. And so that's a, that's something to definitely, um, that definitely, um, plays a role in my, um, in my project now, the team that has um, the citizen scientist team that has has done this for me um, really well la- last year and even the year before. Um, they are two of them, and they do it together. And so the whole complementing each other um, in in multiple ways in collecting the data. And I think that's that's cool. I think that um, the this is this is just the citizen science research requires people to um to volunteer so they're volunteering their time but to also commit to some degree Mm. and when you have a a people working as teams that helps with that committing I think
1: oh yeah Uh, like the motivation and the accountability mm -hmm. and all that good stuff yeah
3: and um I I have I'm in the process right now of processing my data from that was collected last year so I can't um I can't make a comment yet about the citizen scientists' work last year. However, the first year that I did uh, the pilot project with the citizen scientists program, um, what we found was really interesting: is that they collect all kinds of things, not exactly, not always exactly what I'm looking for. But um, what they did collect um, was a species that I had not found um, in oh, my wow. in my data collection. And um, it was, I don't know, it was a a species that um, they didn't collect the actual exuviae, but they collected a molt, a a Mm -hmm. shed exoskeleton that was floating in the water. And so it was a really kind of a cool, it was a different piece of, it was a really unique piece of information.
1: Oh, I love that. How like it's isn't it fun? I mean, that's sort of the the whole point, right? When it comes to these scientific questions that we're asking, and sometimes we can get really in in the weeds and really focus on very specific questions, looking for very specific outcomes. And then every so often, there's like a really nice surprise that you come across yeah. that kind of changes your perspective of it,
3: yeah. I mean, all the I, all kinds of other things that I am not surveying, but yet I'm still interested in things that live in the pond and. Um spiders and and other um aquatic insects that what they collected were um I say valuable pieces of information. Um just not they're not data exactly for my research, but doesn't matter. Um pretty yeah, interesting.
1: Still important, right? It's it all kind of comes together to tell this this big important picture. I think it's really smart and it's really cool. Um, that so many scientists are discovering and realizing that whether it be the data collection side of things, as it often is the case with citizen science in um, wildlife, or whether it be the data analysis side of things, like is so often with things like um, Galaxy Zoo and some of the more like astronomy, physics, citizen science opportunities that are out there. Um, regardless, that there's just a lot of information that needs to be made sense of. It needs to be collected, and then we need to make sense of it. And if you can enlist people who really care about it and who want to help and maybe it makes their experience of visiting a cemetery, for example, that much more fulfilling. What a cool way to collaborate with, with individuals like living within your own community.
3: So one of the things that I've heard uh, mentioned a lot is that within the biological sciences, anyway, the question of how useful is citizen scientist data Mm -hmm. and um, you know, this is still, I think we're still early on in, I'm, I'm not saying we just us at Monomer, but people in general, this whole, how, how to, to include more people and how to, um, be able to use what they can collect to mm-hmm. train them well, to, um, teach them. I, I, don't know. I think it's, I think there are a lot of benefits in addition to what benefit you get from actually producing data.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. It's probably really fulfilling both for the individuals involved, but also for the scientists who get that data. And I think probably... I mean, my assumption is, and Paul, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about this. My assumption is that there are downstream benefits that we can't really even calculate yet because of things like iNaturalist and because of these large databases that maybe somebody who makes an identification as they're hiking on their neighborhood trail says, oh, I think I saw this snake. I'm not sure what it is. Here, let me snap a picture. And now it's got your GPS coordinates and it's time stamped. And, you know, maybe a couple of scientists who are on there, or a couple of local naturalists who are on there are like, oh, yeah, that's a whatever rattlesnake oh okay cool but then later down the line it may become really relevant that all of those um all of those sightings were collected because somebody working on their doctoral dissert- dissertation five years from now might say i want to look at all of these different timestamped collections and uh, i have a really important research question that i'm trying to answer and look at this wealth of information that's in front of me
2: absolutely absolutely and um You know, one of the um, beneficial components of all this work being done here is uh, Mount Auburn Cemetery is located uh, right down the street from Harvard University. Mm -hmm. And so um, at the Museum of Comparative Zoology, we often will donate specimens for their collections there. Uh, And that um, has proven to be very important and very useful to various faculty members over at Harvard who then um, can come over to Mount Auburn and do additional research uh, based on some of the discoveries that have occurred here. Um, And I think one of the really great benefits for our citizen scientists are as they attend classroom and field trainings and as they mm-hmm. participate in tutorial walks, their knowledge as they participate year in and year out uh, grows and they become much more familiar and much more competent in the subject matter. And it, it's really gratifying to see these people not only uh, communicating uh, you know, with each other to share information or reaching out to uh, researchers who may not even be working, who they may may, may not be working for, uh, to share uh, information based on their observations. Uh, but they also, um, you know, become comfortable to share with visitors who come in and might see them in their citizen science t-shirts or notice they're they're wearing a lanyard, Mm. um, you know, that that says they're a citizen science volunteer. And so they describe not only our program, but they describe the work that that is being done. And, And people are just, you know, amazed to learn about it. But I, you know, I think just based on, you know, what I notice from observing our citizen scientists is that it's very gratifying to them to be able to share what they've learned. Yeah, we're essentially building a science community here.
3: And then where are they going to take that? I mean, ideally, hopefully that they will themselves and also people they communicate with will be interested in looking at, well, what's in the park that's, down the street from where I live. Like I know now I know what to to look for in certain, some, certain wildlife component. Now I can, let me go see if it's down there. Now for my, in my um, urban ecology research and in a lot of other um, researchers as well, um, a lot of times uh, urban habitats are ignored and assumed to be like nothing.
1: Yeah, or people like painted or something. Yes. Yeah, like, yeah, and it's people, weird. And,
3: so for for a long time now, um, biology um, and ecology um, have ignored urban habitat, and what they're finding now, I would say around 2000 was when things really started to to get um, going, and and I mean in all over the world, but also all different kinds of wildlife um, have have um, people are looking more at urban populations, find, finding stuff that they didn't know was there, and and then finding stuff novel situations that have um, come about because this is a non-natural type of environment and certain animals and plants are adapting to these weird conditions and so we have a weird mix that's not the same as in natural pristine habitat.
1: Yeah. You know, I was, I was interested to, to find out, you know, Maria, for example, you, you mentioned, um, some of the kind of unexpected outcomes of finding this molt of this organism that you didn't expect, or, um, maybe some of the insights about the, uh, salamander. What was it? The spotted salamander and how they've thrived over many of the years, maybe between you and, and Paul, especially because they're, you know, like you said, upwards of nine projects going on last year. Um, I, I'm wondering if there's anything that sticks out to you in your mind of like interesting findings, um, whether you expected them or not, but things that you're like, oh, this is the fruit of our labor. Like, look at this cool stuff that we've been discovering through the use of citizen scientists and also just through really being able to take the time to um, observe in these in these, um, interesting environments.
2: Uh, well, I would say that one of the really interesting things that I've seen is that, um, when we were doing the native amphibian reintroductions, we were, uh, introducing tadpoles at our vernal pool area, which is in the center of the cemetery. And it's essentially, um, you know, a, a heavily wooded, uh, glen mm-hmm. in the center of the cemetery. And, uh, it was interesting to see as, uh, the tadpoles metamorphosized, and then uh, eventually went up onto land. It was interesting to see where they dispersed to and uh, where future breeding populations occurred Uh, because what happened was the American toad uh, completely bypassed a pond in between the vernal pool and another pond and they began breeding in that third pond. And, um, and you know, and it, it was interesting because we could see uh, toadlets out on the grounds all over the cemetery, but they weren't, they, for whatever reason, they had skipped that, that second water body. Um, so, um, and several years went by, and then finally we started hearing uh, the trilling Uh, in the spring from the American toads at that, at that third pond. And uh, so it was, uh, you know, everyone was very excited and and made sure to uh, go over to that pond uh, to, to, you know, observe the toadlets once they emerged from that water body. And it was, you know, really uh, uh, something special to see uh, how, how wildlife, uh, you know, uh, disperses and then uh, uh, its populations grow, uh, rather, you know, because it, it happens in unanticipated ways.
3: And, mm. and anecdotally, there's data that those toads have left the premises and gone elsewhere. Um, it's anecdotal yes. at this time, but that the population has moved to other places where it was not, where it had been
2: extirpated. Yeah, very uh, cool. Sure. Yeah. Right, we there. Um, there's an old railway line that runs along uh, the perimeter of Mount Auburn Cemetery, and then it heads over to a reservoir in Cambridge, um, and that has kind of acted as a wildlife corridor, uh, and so uh, some amphibians, but also mammals as well, uh, have made use of that old. Abandoned Railway Line, which is now being turned into a multi-use bike path. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that impacts uh, the the traveling of, of some of our wildlife. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, those amphibians were released here. Uh, and they've they made use of that corridor to, to bring themselves to new breeding ground.
3: And um, I say that... Um- Uh, Hands down, all of this amphibian stuff is like is very cool. Like that's (laughs) that's the the top thing I I think um, for what's been going on here. Um, But with regard to my um, dragonfly data, um, I'll I'll tell you. um, Well, they're compared to my research in Rhode Island, Mm -hmm. um, looking at urban ponds as well. Um, The the ponds that I've been studying here have been pretty low in diversity of dragonflies. However, um, what is very cool is that the two ponds that I have um, surveyed now for four years um, on Mount Auburn's property have entirely different um, species uh, communities emerging from them.
1: So oh, cool. So they're and, kind of like distinct uh, little environments.
3: Yes. One being the vernal pool mm-hmm. and the other being the largest uh, pond on the property. That's very sunny and open, has a lot of uh, um, uh, a lot of the surrounding area is lawn. Um, and whereas the vernal pool, like like um, Paul says, it's it's in a glen. So it's like it's it's got a lot of towering trees and woods around it. And it, Mm -hmm. and it sits in a, like a, like on a hill Um, (laughs) anyway, but, um, but so yeah, so uh, very cool that the fact that they're very different populations. And then this year, so the, the first three years of data that I have, have been, like I said, very species poor compared to places in Rhode Island, Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but consistent until this year. And then this year I had a bunch more, a new species that showed up. So, oh, cool. so like I said, I'm processing that right now. Uh, but um, I know for sure that there are at least four new species of uh, dragonfly that I had not detected before.
1: Wow. Well, that's exciting and surprising. I mean, it's so cool that in each of these individual research projects, there are these exciting um, outcomes and just, you know, it, Kind of iteratively increase knowledge, but also sometimes these these little shifts in knowledge that can occur kind of quickly when you discover something new, um, and those are specific to the individual projects that you're doing. I'm wondering as we're getting kind of close to to closing up our conversation, if maybe both of you have anything to share about uh, um how you know how these projects at Mount Auburn can potentially have. A larger impact? Like, what can other researchers, um, other people who are interested in citizen science maybe learn from the work that you're doing? How might it be applied in other areas? And, you know, what's sort of the greater impact of of this kind of investigation?
2: Well, I I think um, probably the most important takeaway uh, from any citizen science program going today is that uh, these programs. Should be designed not just for the, you know, to help a biodiversity researcher with their research, but also to get people outside, closer to nature, because people more than ever are demanding to know what is happening, what will what exists around them mm-hmm. and what is either happening to them or what they fear may happen to wildlife or, uh, you know, the, the the flora all around us as, you know, we hear these, you know, terrible stories of, you know, wildf- wildfires and droughts and flooding and sea level rise. Yeah, uh, colony
1: so- collapse. And yeah, all these things that are happening with um, globalization, with climate change, with habitat loss, like these terrible outcomes
2: right so people really want to become part of a solution uh and they want to get involved and i I think that um you know citizen science is a great avenue for people to be able to participate Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, i i also just wanted to really briefly mention that um Mount Auburn also participates in the annual City Nature Challenge that I believe uh, Los Angeles and uh, San Francisco oh, did yeah. some years back. So Mount Auburn is a, uh, is a site uh, every, uh, every year for a bio blitz cool. uh, of the City Nature Challenge. So we're, we're proud of that.
1: Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, I'm like, I'm always involved in that every year. I have a lot of good friends at the Natural History Museum of L.A. County who have spearheaded that. And um, yeah, there's like a a fierce rivalry with San Francisco (laughs) here in L.A. about who can make more um, uh, uh, observations in that City Nature Challenge. That's really cool to hear that you guys are heavily involved in that as well. I think it's so fun and it's just, it really is so important.
3: I hope ultimately that that, um, the outreach um, continues to expand. And if that can um, eventually um, influence politics and land Mm -hmm. use um, Mm -hmm. decisions, whether um, locally or regionally or nationally, I I hope that's one thing I hope for. And the additional thing that I wanted to add is that um, I would like to have more homeschoolers, involved in this. oh, and so brilliant. hoping to connect a few people, I know this year, but I, um, yeah, so, um, that, that would be something cool to add another real, um, a different, uh, demographic to the citizen scientist uh, program. And that ho- ideally would also influence people in the future as they, um, learn and get older and just, you know, decide what they want to work on in the future.
1: Absolutely. And I think that kind of both of those points really, in a way, are a great um, a great segue into the final two questions that I that I like to pose to my guests on the show, because I do think that they tend to um, they tend to evoke or elicit more of a, a thoughtful and and maybe, you know, dare I say, political um response and so I think that that bringing those those topics up are really important so so you know if you guys are ready for it these are kind of big deep questions and I would love to get both of your perspectives and feel free to kind of go one after the other or to play off of what each other says um but I, I want you to think about the future, um, which obviously both of you do in your work on a regular basis. So so thinking about the future in whatever context is relevant to you right now. So this could be like global climate change. This could be um, the future of citizen science, the future of your work, or or, or even much larger um, uh, kind of perspectives. The first thing I want to know is what is the thing that absolutely keeps you up, up at night, the thing that you're most concerned? concerned about that you know maybe you're even a, a bit pessimistic about like things aren't looking very good we gotta we gotta get on this and and on the flip side of that um what is the thing that you are really genuinely hopeful and optimistic for um so yeah feel free if if one of you has an answer um that you just want to dive right in you can otherwise feel free to play off of each other with that
2: well i i would say that um under the current administration in Washington, mm-hmm. uh, I really uh, have been taken aback, although not uh, unexpectedly, mm-hmm. but I've been taken aback by, um, you know, the the follow through to destroy uh, protections uh, of clean water and clean air. Uh, and I worry about the generations that are going to follow us, I worry about, uh, you know, the folks with uh, asthma, and I worry about, uh, you know, will there be enough clean water for drinking and a- agriculture? And I worry about will will we be able to slow the Earth from warming so that uh, we can grow enough food to feed our own people?
1: Yeah, like what what is actually going to happen as these. Um, even the minimal protections that have been in place are being systematically and kind of blatantly dismantled, um, right, right in front of our eyes. I, yeah, that's such an important concern. Maria, is is that similar to where you, to where you're standing, or do you have anything um, different or anything to add to that in terms of like what you're worried about?
3: I think this is similar, um, but I might state it in a different way. In that I, um, I'm most concerned with land use. Mm-hmm. And habitat destruction. And whether that be either eliminating things like forests or whatever, or polluting um and not cleaning up or not being required to clean up or not being required to have a have a legitimate plan. Um so that's something that I'm um concerned about. Um that does sort of mirror what um what Paul's saying. Um mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and so that yes, yeah, su- sustainability is also um a, a factor there, you know?
1: Absolutely. And and sort of on on the flip side of that, you know, and it could be related or it could be completely different. Um, what are you guys hopeful for? You know, where where do you see that kind of light? Um, that silver lining.
2: Well, I um, you know, I, I think that um you know, the, the younger people that I've come across that visit the cemetery when we talk about these subjects uh, are almost completely unified on, on these subjects. Uh, you know, they're people aren't they're not going to their own corners and choosing what is truth um, based on their own desires at that time. They are, they, you know, they have accepted that there's a problem, and that um, the only solution is going to be through, uh, you know, working together to solve it.
3: Mm-hmm. And I, am um, very much in agreement. I teach college uh, students, and I have uh, two students in elementary school, two kids in elementary school, and I am just like ready for the 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 old older generations to move <laughs> on in in regard to this. I. Um, I'm so glad that education is, is really becoming, uh, very aware, um, specifically of, um, environmental issues. And I hope that it's done correctly, you know, um, but I'm really, um, I'm optimistic. I I have to be optimistic, right? Um, I'm optimistic about, about it. I'm very glad to see that young generations have, um, a different perspective than say mine, mine did.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, Paul and Maria, oh my gosh, I learned so much chatting with you today. I would love before we um, before we say goodbye for you to let us know, you know, how can people learn more about the projects at Mount Auburn? If they want to get involved, how can they get involved? How can they follow you guys' individual work? Um, where should they go to, to look all this stuff up?
2: Uh, well, you can go to our website, which is mountauburn.org and um we we post uh information about our sustainability efforts uh on, uh, on various uh, social media platforms including uh Facebook Instagram and Twitter and uh mm-hmm. we also promote our efforts uh locally I'll visit uh our, our, the local libraries surrounding us to post materials and uh and Many of our researchers, such as Maria, uh, also reach out to to folks on their own to kind of extend our sphere of influence about uh, these subjects.
1: Very cool, uh, Maria. Anything to add to that?
2: I
3: um, last year I started. Uh, I di- I pr- presented my data at a um, a regional conference here in New England, um, and it was. Uh, it was really great because it was something different. I mean, it was something very unique mm-hmm. um, that was, and I got a lot of, of great feedback and uh, conversations that came out of that. Um, I'm hoping to present my data elsewhere. I'm willing to, um, I've told a lot of different groups I would be willing to, it's a matter of them getting back to me, I guess. Um, and I'd also like to, um, I'd like to publish um, more um, and, um,
1: yeah 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 very cool so people um hopefully even the 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 broader community and the broader scientific community will have access to some of this information as well well gosh you guys it's been it's been so informative i want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to um to enlighten us about uh, about the really incredible work that you're doing
2: thanks Kara. it was great to talk to you yeah thank you Kara. Of
1: course, and everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy.